Cell phones are everywhere, with the number of cell phone subscriptions recently surpassing the global population. We spend more and more time on our phones, and they have certainly facilitated communication and made many aspects of our lives easier and more enjoyable. Hey, you're probably listening to this podcast on your phone right now. That said, are they also putting your health at risk? Cell phones operate using a form of electromagnetic energy called radio frequency, or RF waves. Now, before you put down your phone, you should know that we are constantly surrounded by natural and human-made sources of electromagnetic energy. But do cell phones pose a unique risk given both their ubiquity and proximity to our bodies? Many of us can recall a family member telling us to stand farther from the microwave oven. However, few of us take the same caution to distance ourselves from our phones. In fact, our phones rarely leave our sides, day or night, and we live in a world in which our phones constantly receive notifications. Dependence on our phones will likely continue and maybe even grow for the next generations of users, our children. From a population health perspective, should we be changing these behaviors to mitigate any potential health risks? Today, we're going to reflect on the epidemiologic science that has tried to answer this precise question. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In each episode, we'll look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we're exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health and bring you a look at what we currently know and what we don't know about each of these conditions or potential causes of disease. Today, we are going to be talking about the impact of cell phone use on health with a focus on one of the most directly implicated outcomes, cancer. To do so, I'm joined by my good friend, epidemiologist and associate professor, Ariat Nandy from McGill University to lead a conversation on this topic. Welcome, Ari. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And we are joined by a guest with expertise on this topic. Ari, could you please introduce Dr. Savitz? Sure. My pleasure, Brian. Uh, so we're joined by Dr. David Savitz, who is a professor of epidemiology and obstetrics and gynecology at Brown University. His research has investigated the relation between environmental influences, including radiation exposure and health, among many other topics. He studied cell phones and cancer in particular, and was a member of the scientific expert group for the International Commission on Non-Ionizing Radiation Protection. David is also the author of Interpreting Epidemiologic Evidence, which happens to be on the bookshelf right behind me. Uh, so it's a real honor to have him join our podcast today. Uh, Dr. Savitz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So Ari, do you want to ask Dr. Savitz our first question? Sure, I'd love to. So. Uh, I was thinking a good place to start would actually be with some of the historical perspective on this particular question. Uh, so David, could you tell us a little bit more about this story and what expert organizations have concluded about the risks posed by cell phones? Uh, we're thinking, I guess, about tracing this pathway between the International Agency for, Risks for Research on Cancer, IARC, uh, and their decision in 2011 to classify electromagnetic fields as possibly carcinogenic. And perhaps you could tell us what IARC is and what it means to be possibly carcinogenic, all the way to the recent announcement just in February 2020, uh, where the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, concluded that cell phones don't pose a risk. Uh, it'd be great to get your insight on that. Sure. L let me try to give you, again, I'm going to go back a little bit further for the historical perspective of, uh, as they were being introduced, and I don't have the, the precise timeline, but, but you know, some, whatever, 20-some years ago, 
Um, there were, there were not surprisingly, there were concerns. I mean, you know, one of the scary ways to present it is, is humans were being exposed to a form of non-ionizing radiation that had never before existed in, in the history of humankind. This is a new form of, of exposure. And naturally, there would be some questions about it. Uh, as is often the case, there were a few uh, claims or assertions of people that were troubled by these exposures that would have various sorts of you know, cognitive problems. Or I think there were some cases where um, there were claims of, uh, I remember with radar guns being held in the, the lap of those, uh, I think, police officers and developing testicular cancer. And so there are a series of these questions that arose. And then, of course, as often follows, the epidemiologic research that began to address them. And it, it really, um, you know, there were a series of small studies that had looked at the, the question of whether there was an association with uh, cancers in those locations that are most proximal to where the phone was used, namely, uh, in the head, uh, you know, uh, uh, brain cancer, uh, acoustic neuromas, which are a nerve in the, you know, that serves the ear, uh, you know, which made sense because the, the exposures themselves are very, uh, cover a very narrow distance. In other words, if you're holding it on one side of your head, the, the, it's, it's, it's really just a matter of several centimeters that have any notable exposure and, and therefore it's very local. So anyway, the, the, um, there were a series of studies that were done. Uh, I won't, again, go through them in, in great detail. But then they sort of culminated with a very large study that IR coordinated, uh, so-called the Interphone study, where they had uh, very, you know, quite large thousands of cases of cancer and controls and did a very thorough job in examining the uh, in a case control design, comparing those who had cancer with a uh, healthy, uh, you know, comparison population, whether there was an association with, uh, as they call it in Europe, more often mobile phone use, so mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And um, it was generally, but not completely, uh, reassuring of an absence of association. And that generally, but not completely, resulted in something like three or four years of controversy among the investigators as to what story it uh, was telling. Um, that was followed then by the IARC, uh, as they do for carcinogens, they review all of the evidence and come to a judgment. And I think in, in um, counter to most others uh, who had reviewed the evidence, the IARC uh, committee came out and said that it was a, I think, possible human carcinogen. Uh, other agencies at the time and subsequently, again, I haven't done a full count, but, but by far the majority do not uh, hold that point of view, which is a long way of saying uh, there is controversy. Interesting. And then, and then more recently, the FDA concluded that there's no quantifiable human risk, right? That's right. There's, it, it really, uh, and there, again, I think that uh, it's always dangerous to sort of speak for the scientific community, because I'm just one person with my own interpretations and, and I'm sure biases, whether I uh, you try to avoid them or not. But I think that the preponderance of evidence and the preponderance of opinion 
is aligned with the FDA. Uh, th that is that looking at the evidence in its totality, uh, that it is overall reassuring about the absence of uh, any uh, association with, with cancer. Uh, that's not to say that there, uh, every single finding of every analysis in every study is, is reassuring. There are uh, bits and pieces of information that some people find uh, you know, put a lot of weight on. Uh, but when you, again, I think that looked at in its aggregate form and its totality of lines of evidence, uh, it is quite reassuring uh, that, that there is not a uh, observable, discernible, recognizable risk. It's not to say we know with certainty that uh, the, the future will never indicate that and so on. It, it's, a, it's sort of a, uh, the, the best evidence at the time uh, at any given point in time is, is what has to be used. Uh, it doesn't mean you stop asking the question. Right. Okay. So that's very interesting. And it sounds like uh, in many ways, we've kind of reached the conclusion of this podcast, maybe before, uh, before we even start talking about it. But I think there's a lot more to explore and a lot more information to give our listeners. Um, you know, let's talk a little bit about what this exposure is. You know, what, what are we actually talking about when we talk about cell phone use and what potentially could be dangerous to health. So we talked about RF uh, waves, radio frequency energy. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what this is, including how it compares to other forms of electromagnetic energy that um, are emitted from other devices? The, I mean, it's, it's a form of, uh, in the category of non-ionizing radiation, which means basically it doesn't break chemical bonds. So the, the important distinction to start with is this is completely different it's in, its, in its biologic effects compared to x-rays or radon or other forms of ionizing radiation, which are well-established human carcinogens uh, you know, the extreme version, of course, the atomic bomb. Uh, but these are uh, well-established uh, human carcinogens. Non-ionizing radiation does not have that level of energy. And so the spectrum includes everything from uh, the, the, uh, uh, what, what you get from power lines or electrical appliances in the home, uh, uh, TV broadcasting, uh, uh, microwave ovens, uh, microwaves uh, are part of that, and as Sorry, well, microwaves the, are part of ionizing or non-ionizing. Non-ionizing, they're okay. all part of non-ionizing radiation. These mm -hmm. are all part of the spectrum, and they vary in their frequencies and their physical properties, uh, as indicated by the different uses of everything from you know uh, heating up food in a microwave to broadcasting TV signals, right. uh, or uh, Wi-Fi for that matter is a another form of non-ionizing radiation. So radio frequency are, are very high frequency. Uh, and uh, again, for uh, uh, physical property reasons that I'm not able to explain, not being an, in, you know, an engineer or a physicist, uh, these are useful for communication. Um, it's probably worth also mentioning that at high levels, most of these forms of radiation are capable uh, non-ionizing radiation are capable of heating tissues. So the right. clearly with we, microwaves, right? <laughs> obviously with microwaves, right? I mean that's that's what they're used for, mm -hmm. um, and at at very high intensities, 
Uh, other forms of non-ionizing radiation can also heat tissue. Hmm. But that is not what is of concern here. We're not talking about people burning themselves. <laughs> right. We're talking about a sort of the idea would be that this low level chronic exposure would have subtle, unrecognized, but ultimately uh, serious uh, uh, adverse health effects. It's more hmm. subtle and long-term. Gotcha. Yeah, so just to follow up on that, um, a question that I often hear from friends or family or in the media is, you know, when are cell phones actually emitting this type of energy? You know, is it only when I'm actively making calls? Is it when I'm checking uh, news or reading emails? Uh, or even when it's kind of dormant in my pocket? Uh, There's, it's, you know, it, it, the, the level of use, I mean, they, they try to design them so that they are not... Um, if you will, wasting the signal when they don't need it. And so when you are actively engaged in a conversation, it's going back and forth with the cell tower and communicating with your phone. Uh, if you're texting, it's, it's again, it's done in a sort of sporadic manner. If it's uh, not being used, but obviously it's, it's, it's collecting things, it knows where you are, it, is accruing, you know, messages and so on, even when you don't have it, uh, when, when you're not actively using it, mm -hmm. there is some level of, uh, uh, you know, the connection is causing some level of exposure. Mm -hmm. It's probably worth noting too, again, historically, that going from this phase where uh, you all may be too young to remember that cell phones were used primarily for talking at one point, not for texting. <laughs> we're not that and, young. <laughs> and uh, it really is, uh, it was a huge change because as I said, the exposures are quite local. So the way to avoid exposures to your head is don't hold the phone next to your head when you're mm -hmm. using it. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. So some people have these like various wires and mechanisms to keep it physically away. And it's not to say that, uh, again, it's not foolhardy to just hold the thing up to your ear and use it that way. But for those who are concerned, you want to avoid exposures to your head, just don't hold it next to your head. Yeah, so that's really interesting. And I wanted to follow up on that, because I've always been interested in this, you know, the idea that, so it really, you were saying earlier that it really is just within a few centimeters that it's emitting uh, the, the RF waves to a point that it might be you know, potentially concerning, even though the evidence right. says that it's not. So, but can you explain that a little? I mean, it's hard for us to understand because these waves are going, you know, thousands of feet, if not miles to the, you know, to the radio tower. How is it that just a few centimeters could make such a huge difference? Yeah, no, again, it's a, it's a good question. I'm sure that, again, a physicist or engineer could give a, a better answer than I can, but the penetration in biological tissues of that nature is uh, is quite limited. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's they they there are very detailed studies that have been done uh, that look at the degree of penetration and what what areas are and are not being exposed. I, I don't you know the transmission through air through various other materials. Again, I, I don't know enough about the physical properties right. to speak to that. But one of the ways they've looked at it in, in epidemiologic studies is asking about whether the tumors that occur at locations in the brain that are proximal to the phone, mm -hmm. whether there's a pattern, let's say for that subset, because mm -hmm. the, the parts on the other side of your head are not being exposed. Mm -hmm. So there's efforts to look at which side of the, your head do you use the phone on. 
and are the tumors in, you know, in terms of their anatomy location, are they uh, closer to where the phone is? And it provides further reassurance that no, that's not a pattern that's seen. Gotcha. Interesting. So, right. So it sounds like, you know, if you're keeping this phone on your bedside table, two or three feet from your head, um, which many of us do at night, every night, um, we're not talking about the same level of exposure as if you had that thing up to your head, you know, talking for hours at a time. That's right. You, using it as your pillow. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, yeah. Well, carrying on with that, though, you know, I know that I've heard at least in news reports the idea that carrying it in your, in your pocket could be exposing, you know, not your head, but other parts of your body <laughs> right. to, uh, to uh, yeah. cancer risks that you might not, that you might want to avoid. Right. So. No, there, there's been concerns with testicular cancer, mm -hmm. with, with in, uh, male infertility, uh, mm -hmm. damage to the sperm in some way. Um, and again, there's less literature, uh, but what is there is by and large reassuring about the absence. It's probably worth noting too, again, as an epidemiologist, of course, what I'm most familiar with is the epidemiology. Mm -hmm. But we're starting with a situation that in theory, from what we know of the biophysics from the laboratory work, there should not be harm from this agent. We're not, uh, so, so we start off, if you will, the, the prior expectation is that this should not be a problem. And so we're not, the, the epidemiology is not following, you know, a, a convincing case that it, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a hazard in experimental animals or the biologic effects are known to be uh, threatening. Right. It's reassuring. And so the epidemiology really, I think, is more serving a role of we better make sure we're, yeah. we're all exposed to it. Right. We don't think there's a problem but that's not good enough. We wanna keep an eye on things. And so I think of it more in the spirit, including work that will go forward, more in the spirit of surveillance yeah. than I do in the mode of showing that this threat, you know, trying to discern is this, is this threat real or not? It's more saying, let's make sure that nothing unexpected is happening. Very interesting, David. Uh, so another question that I have, uh, something that I'm curious about is, you know, given that cell phone technology itself has evolved so much over the past two decades, has this also resulted in a change in the way that the exposure is emitted, kind of the intensity of exposure over time? And will that continue, I guess, as technologies continue to evolve? Yeah, no, no that, that's an important point. The, the technology is constantly evolving. Uh, the, the, so the, the problem for studying health effects is by its very nature, what we can study are the effects of exposures that have occurred in the past. Those exposures are not what we're getting in the present. And so we're always a step behind, which is another one of the reasons I think to be, uh, to continue the surveillance. We don't think that the constant changes in the technology and the resulting nuances of exposure. Uh, we don't think that it's introducing something that is, that is threatening to health, but unless we keep monitoring it, we, we don't know for sure. Hmm. Um, and it is, again, the, the, for, for just think about the different even forms of 
not uh, beyond radio frequency, the uh, how ubiquitous Wi-Fi is. You know, there there are whole communities now, uh, and certainly many, most I suspect, public locations, most private locations seem to have Wi-Fi. Well, that's changing the profile. It's changing the the mix of uh, what we're exposed to. Hmm. Yeah, really good yeah. point. If I could just follow up on that. Um, so I'm just trying to tie this back to the interphone study, which you had mentioned. Given this challenge of exposure being so variable, how do they actually assign that in a study like interphone? Like, do they just ask Brian how much he's used his cell phone over the past? And, and what kind year? of phone you're using? Yeah, exactly. They they were um, the interphone study. I want to give them a lot of credit. They they sort of set the standard for. Um, is getting a, a detailed information on the history of cell phone use, uh, how long the calls are, how many calls over a course of your entire life, uh, certainly the type of phone, uh, and so on. They, they really, uh, it was, it's ultimately limited by uh, people's ability to recall, but uh, it was pushing the bounds of what could possibly be desired in such a study. And uh, sometimes I think we get carried away because we, we gather information that looks increasingly precise, but we're, we're really butting up against the uh, ability of people to recall uh, and uh, explain that. Uh, so nonetheless, I think you know, it, it was a very, very well-designed study, very thoughtfully designed. And they, they did a lot of work to determine how accurately people were reporting and so on. But ultimately, there were some indications that call into question uh, whether the reporting of those who had developed cancer might differ in meaningful ways. You just try to sort of think of if you were one of the unfortunate uh, individuals who had developed brain cancer, well, you're trying to recall and explain your history of cell phone use, and you've heard about the concerns. It might be different in ways that are important from those who are just happily living their lives in good health, and they're reporting their history. And that's very hard to completely eliminate in studies of this nature. Right, because prospectively, theoretically, you'd have to follow a lot of people to get the cancer events, you know, that would be a, a high enough frequency that you could actually do do the right study. Now, ironically, been, yeah. I was gonna say though, sorry to interrupt, but the, yeah. there have been studies yeah. that have done that in the, particularly in the Scandinavian countries where there's yeah. more extensive record keeping, right. which have at least tried to create very, very large populations of, of users. Uh, the challenge there is that there are, uh, there are not non-users. Everybody is a user now. <laughs> That's right. We're all dosed. Yeah. And all they can do is look at people who adopted it earlier versus later. Mm -hmm. But as time goes by, everybody's been using them for a decade or more. Yeah. Now, ironically, we could use the actual cell phones to collect some of this data and get beyond some of this uh, self-report bias issue. And, and we could actually look at difference in, in measure of actual usage rather than just the fact that you own a phone, right? No, that's so been that talked be about a lot. That's been talked about, in fact, gosh, for, for years since mm -hmm. we've been doing research on this topic. And there are different challenges that, that apply there of who is the phone registered to? Many people use phones that are 
sort of ass, you know, assigned at work or through work. Their their you know family plans. There's a lot of complexity in that. And as I said, I think it's increasingly challenging because the gradation of exposure we're able to look at is basically limited by the variation in what people do. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have a situation where there are large numbers of non-users and you know, intense users and so on. Everybody's a user and at, at varying levels of uh, intensity. So we talked a little bit about um, you know, the, the change in technology and how we're always a little bit behind you know, being able to measure the effect of that. But um, we, we talked about how 5G technology is the next big wave. Um, and I guess you know, the question I have is whether the, the difference with 5G, both the networks as well as the phones, the devices, is it a difference of you know, quantity or quality? You know what I mean? Like this RF wave exposure, are we talking about, is it going to be more intense with 5G devices or is it pretty much the same thing? It's just, it's just a difference of kind instead of, you know, what's actually putting out the amount that it's putting out. My understanding is that it's a, it's a quantity issue, even mm -hmm. though in the marketing of it, at first it sounded like a completely new yeah. sort of mode of communication. I think that's a little bit of a marketing ploy it, it's the volume is changing and the mm -hmm. things they can do with that increased volume. Having said that though, the, um, oh, there was a phase when they went from analog to digital phones, yeah. which was uh, more of a qualitative shift. Right. And with these physical parameters, there are so many subtle characteristics of the waveforms. It's not just more versus less. It's, it's different, different timing patterns. Just to make it a little more complicated, when the more, the sort of the more um, uh, comprehensive the cell towers are, the less the distance is between your phone and the nearest tower. And so there was a period, and it's probably still true, that in very rural areas where you barely are getting a signal, that phone is really working hard. It's, it's, that's mm. a, it's an intense effort, if you will, to communicate. Whereas when you're in an urban area and it's just, you know, down the block, uh, it doesn't have as much power required to, to communicate in that way. That's and there's been efforts yeah. to try to incorporate that. But honestly, it, it's again, it's another dimension of exposure that is extremely difficult to measure with any accuracy and consistently of where were you when you used the phone? Well, that's a complicated story to tell. Hmm. So uh, very interesting, David, thinking about these challenges of measuring exposure. Um, I suppose that one way that epidemiologists might circum circumvent this issue is through ecological studies, which maybe could, could complement the kind of evidence that we get from interphone. So given that many societies have gone from literally 0% exposure, no cell phones, to basically 100% full coverage. Have we actually seen increases at the population level of some of these cancers, which would be uh, implicated by this type of, uh, of exposure? That's been a really important line of research. You know, a lot of times when we look at these so-called secular changes, long-term changes in exposure and health, it's kind of crude and it's not a very precise way to get at subtle effects. But as you said, we have this unusual situation that there was a period, and it wasn't that long of a period, 
going from no users to everybody being a user. And we, uh, particularly in the uh, Scandinavian countries where they have very, very high quality cancer registries, mm -hmm. uh, they were able to examine the temporal patterns over that period in the occurrence of uh, brain cancer, acoustic neuroma, other head and neck cancers. And uh, those uh, uh, analyses very consistently showed a complete absence of any increase in the diseases of concern. So that either um, there, you know, that leaves open a few possibilities. Maybe there was an increased risk resulting from the mobile phone use that was counteracted by some preventive factor. Right. Uh, it would lead to the, those numbers, but it seems very unlikely. We don't even have a candidate as to why there would have been some compensating uh, preventive factor. Um, it leaves open the possibility that there is yet to be seen some increase in risk that takes many decades to develop. Yeah. Cancers can be very uh, slow to respond in that way. But as the years go by and there is still no increase from historical exposures, it starts to become increasingly implausible that there's an elevated risk. And in fact, they've even done studies where they compare sort of some of the claims or estimates from the uh, more direct epidemiologic studies of individuals, the case control studies, the cohort studies, and look at the degree to which those, the, the, those findings are compatible with this absence of an increase over time. And they simply aren't. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, again, the, the judgment of whether these studies that have suggested the possibility of increased risk, whether that's really reflecting a causal impact or not. And that's where when you, again, in my view, when you look at the totality of evidence, it, uh, it, it does not suggest such an increased risk. Yeah, that's interesting. And you could think, you know, some of the problems with those ecological studies is that at, at a time when a country is developing these cell phone networks, there's all sorts of other things that are going on at the that's same right. time, you know, that's both right. as a result of that and parallel to that. Um, so many changes to society that it's hard to, and all the exposures that come with that, that it's, um, it's really hard to isolate it just being the cell phone use. Right, especially in recent eras. Again, in the Scandinavian countries, obviously they were they were quite well developed you know in the mm -hmm. 1990s and yeah. 80s and way back from there i think that if you look at other parts of the world that are you know the the lower middle income countries where it's been a relatively more recent phenomenon as you said there uh there are many things that are going along in parallel with that and, and, and you know with very very rare exceptions they're unlikely to be the kind of high quality cancer registries that would be required to monitor this. These are not the easiest cancers to uh, monitor, hmm. uh, probably for, for, for the obvious reasons, but the ability to accurately diagnose uh, brain cancers mm -hmm. uh, is, is, is a challenge. I mean, they had a period where they, there was great concern that the risk of these diseases was going up but that was only because the quality of diagnosis was improving, especially in elderly patients where they hadn't been so thorough before. And with various sorts of imaging, uh, they, they, they find more cases as the technology has improved, but then that leveled out and hasn't changed since. Well, that's really interesting. So, you know, we've talked about um, 
the studies in terms of, of all people, but are, are there particular groups of people that have been looked at as potentially more vulnerable? I'm thinking specifically about children, you know, but there may be other groups too. I mean, I know kids are using devices a lot more these days and you know, I know a lot of other exposures may be perfectly fine in adults, but for developing brains and, and developing bodies, uh, more problematic. Has that been, has that received attention? Yeah, it, it has. I mean, I think that, that uh, probably to a somewhat lesser degree than adult uh, brain cancers, but certainly there have been studies that have looked at childhood cancers in relation to uh, mobile phone use. And um, in part because there had been a suggestion uh, previously uh, from studies of, of other forms of electromagnetic fields from power lines and appliances and so on that had raised the question of whether there might be an association with childhood leukemia or childhood brain cancers. And so that it was natural that the question arose uh, for, for uh, uh, mobile phone use in, in children. And again, uh, overall, the results are, are uh, quite reassuring about the absence of uh, uh, cancer uh, causing uh, uh, cancer causation as a result of that. There are some studies which raise questions about sort of uh, neurobehavioral cognitive sorts of impacts on children. But of course, it's very hard to sort out the, the sort of the causal sequence there. If, if, the, if the kids who are using these phones a lot are, uh, you know, a little more fidgety, a little more uh, restless, a little less focused. Well, is that the cell phone or is, the, is it going the other way? Is the, is the phone being used because they're, they're kind of antsy? It's, it's very hard to sort yeah. all that out. We had an entire episode on screen time. Um, okay. The effects yeah. of screen time, especially for children. So we, we talked a lot about that and how hard it is to disentangle it. But, sure. but in terms of just specifically cancer risk, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's no evidence that that's uh, particularly right. a problem for kids. Right? That's right. And again, as with all of these, when we say no evidence, there will be people who will say, mm -hmm. but wait a minute, you're ignoring you know, table seven and line three here, it suggests something. Right. I'm exaggerating slightly for uh, to make my own case here, but this ability to sort of uh, piece together glimmers to tell a story, uh, it, it is it has been done, and in the again I think in the IARC review that that uh, was sort of the outlier, if you will, in my view, that's exactly what they did, is they uh, looked at. Uh, you know, some factors that may uh, have been, you know, you have these possibilities that may have been random, just findings, it may have been some, uh, you know, problems, limitations in the studies, or there may be some very, very subtle pattern of increased risk. And we ultimately have to make a judgment about what is the most likely of those. And I think in my view, and again, many others, I don't think I'm an outlier. It's uh, it really does seem to be noise rather than a signal. So David, given that that IARC report was so influential um, and also that some of these new reports seem to dispute some of their main findings, do you know if they're revisiting that question and plan on uh, publishing a new report given all of the evidence that's accumulated over the past decade or so? I have, I have not heard of that. I, I think that, uh, again, it would be very reasonable 
to revisit this periodically, both as you said, as the evidence accumulates, but also every, you know, every time we do a new study, we're, we're a little bit less behind on the technology of, of, of cell phones that's being examined. And we've allowed a little bit more time for cancers that may not have been observed uh, early on to begin appearing. And so it's something that is important to keep updating uh, to draw the best uh, you know, inferences that we can. Um, I have not heard uh, that. And again, it's, it's, I have you know, great respect for the work IARC does and it's very authoritative. But uh, again, there are times that judgments are made that many people would take exception to. So we know your uh, expertise lies in cancer. Um, but you know, briefly we talked about potential risks to infertility you know, if you carry it in your pocket. Is, are there any other health outcomes you're aware of that are getting attention in terms of cell phone use exposure um, that you think warrant attention or? Um... Yeah, no, I think that with regard to, maybe we should separate out a little bit, you know, radio frequency radiation exposure is one issue. Cell phone exposure includes that but is more than that right and again i know you've you've uh, from what you said i remember you talked about the issue of, of, of cell phone use and uh, you know listen, if you're texting in your car and you crash yeah. well that's cell phones and health <laughs> for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> in a very different pathway right. and so i think you know we're really talking here about the All radio right, frequency yeah. sure. and i think some of the places that one might most logically look would be in the neurobehavioral function area of is it affecting uh, your, your thinking, your emotions, and so on. And one of the, the, if you will, advantages for that line of work is you can actually do human experimental studies. You can put people in rooms and expose them to you know, levels that are generally accepted. We're not, we're not putting them in a microwave oven and cooking them or anything. We're <laughs> sort of ratcheting it up to maybe what you or I experience every day, but you can do it in a controlled manner and see if there's any discernible effect when we go to take tests or looking wow. at our motor function and our skills. And, hmm. and the best evidence there, again, is reassuring. Uh, it's interesting, there, there are those who claim this variation, this thing called electrosensitivity. Yeah. And very oddly, I'm going back to Scandinavia again, they seem to give that more credence there. There's a, some people are huh. thought to be hypersensitive to these kinds of exposures. And again, they've done research and in putting those individuals into these experimental situations. And without fail, uh, it isn't so. Hmm. They can't detect it, they're not affected just like everybody else. Mm. Like the courtroom scene in Better Call Saul, if anyone saw that. They, yeah, right. That's they directly right. tested that. That's, uh, I, I did see that. And that is a, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't look to that for my right. uh, inferences <laughs> about not, the effect but... of mobile phones. Yeah, interesting. Well, I don't know if you know this, David, but I do um, Alzheimer's research. So it, it's really interesting to think about RF waves affecting our cognition. Has, has there been any link to dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, anything like that? You know, I'm not aware of it with regard to cell phones, but again, going back to an earlier round of research that I was very much involved in, uh, looking at uh, power frequency fields, yeah. the 50 and 60 hertz fields that are mm -hmm. in the everyday electric, you know, electricity use, mm -hmm. 
there was, and we contributed to a small literature on looking at, at uh, really multiple forms of neurodegenerative disease, wow. uh, work on uh, ALS on, uh, and Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's to a little bit lesser degree. And there were actually some associations there. It was mainly with uh, people who had worked in electrical occupations. Uh, where there was an uh, increased risk, not, I don't want to make the case too strongly, but there was more than a glimmer of suggestion. And then the question was, why might that be? And there was an interest, for example, that uh, whether a series of microshocks over the course of your career, because people that are electricians, they're not, again, it's not infrequent that they're getting a little, little, little zap. Uh, and there was an interest and concern with that. I don't know that it ever was sort of either like a lot of interesting possibilities. I don't think it was ever either put to rest or, or, uh, or, or really developed a lot of traction. It just sort of sits there as an interesting little side path that, that really didn't reach much closure. Hmm. That's really interesting stuff. So thinking about some of these novel designs that you're alluding to, David, uh, are there any new studies or data that are coming out uh, soon, any kind of ongoing population level studies that you're excited about that might help resolve some of these open questions, whether it's about other outcomes or delayed effects? You know, I have not, um, uh, it's interesting too, the degree of urgency that's put on this issue that kind of comes and goes for what seemed to be more, if you will, sociological than, 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 uh, uh, than epidemiological reasons that societies become worried and then they become a little more reassured. Uh, and I am not, I actually do not think this is a hot button issue. We've got so many, I mean, not just the current hot button issue right. of the moment, <laughs> but honestly, if you were to query the public about their top 10 environmental health concerns. I don't know that this would make the list. Uh, and that was not always the case. There was a time it would have been up there in the upper upper ranks. Yeah. It is more so I, I would, again, this is my observation. If you asked in, in most parts of Europe, they would put it more highly than we would in uh, North America. They, they, they take this issue uh, for, for whatever reasons more seriously. I don't think there's a lot of activity going on, um, partially because, again, when I talk about research getting traction, it means that we're on to something where we've got a hint from your study that really is worth following up and I'm gonna do it even better and we're gonna go forward in that manner. I don't think there's a lot of footholds here. So the nature of the research I think is really more in this surveillance mode of not based on uh, potentially worrisome new findings, but more based on a, a general prudence and concern about keeping an eye on the effects of technology, which I think is where it belongs. I think that periodically you need to follow this. I think we need to keep monitoring cancer occurrence, uh, maybe periodically embark on some studies but it's more in the spirit of vigilance than, than, uh, than, than based on some belief that we're, we, we've, we've got a tip of an iceberg here and there's a serious problem. Yeah, I wonder how much of it is, you know, the combination of our addiction to our cell phones 
with the relatively low risk of some of these outcomes. I mean, just kind of a morbid thought experiment, but we had exploding cell phones in the last year or two. <laughs> if one out of every 10,000 cell phones just spontaneously exploded, would it affect our behavior? Right, right. I don't you know. know and it, well, and I, I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's sort of a standard dogma about what, uh, what are the attributes that make a potential health threat more, um, let's say interesting, but let's say more worrisome to the public. And this, mm -hmm. this, has, ever, this has them all. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cancer, which is one of the most frightening mm -hmm. things that of all the diseases. Uh, it is uh, mysterious. It's an agent that you can't see or hear or touch or feel. Uh, it's delayed, so you don't even know if you're doing harm until much, much later. And strangely, the more sort of, um, uh, the, the, the more mysterious it is, like we don't know how this would happen. This doesn't make sense. How could this be? Mm. Which of course, as scientists, we look at it and say, well, it probably isn't, yeah. you know, other people say, oh, no, this is where we really need, you know, they've seen the, they've seen the movies and they've read the books mm -hmm. that all the skeptics and all the naysayers were wrong. Yeah. And so it fits that narrative when we do get someone who says, you know, the sky is falling, we've got a real problem. There's a, it's easy to weave that into this heroic, you know, counter to the conventional wisdom they're yeah. onto a, uh, an impending disaster. So it's sort of the narratives of it, if you will, are kind of interesting. But, you know, the problem, uh, which I've, I've argued before, uh, you know, conventional wisdom is generally right. Um, <laughs> and in this case, I think that the conventional wisdom is not likely, not really, uh, uh, and there ha just hasn't been evidence to, to sort of dislodge it from where it began. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of, if you take a step back and think about it, you know, what, what Ari was saying about these ecological studies, I mean, we have, as a society, gone through an ecological study. We've gone from no cell phones to almost everyone having cell phones in just a period of, you know, decades, less, you know, less than that. And you would, if this was, with that many people being exposed to this, you would think, you would see, you would have to see a huge, you know, rise in the in the risk for cancer overall if there was actually something here just like common sense would tell you that yeah, right? no no i think that's where the you're right billions of people being exposed you know? yeah no sometimes common sense applied to epidemiology of course leads you to the wrong answer uh, that's true that's a good but point. i think that in, in this case though no i really do think though that in this case it, it's exactly as simply as simple as you described yeah. it is that we, we've done it, we've done it for a long time. You can say whether or not it was prudent to do it. I, I, you know, that's, that's, that's hindsight. But the bottom line is that if we're not seeing a signal on a larger scale now, uh, that's meaningful. The absence of, uh, uh, of some indication that, that there's a problem. Got it. Okay, so have we missed any important points that you think people should know about this? Sounds like we've got a pretty consistent conclusion here, <laughs> but have we yeah. missed any points? You know, I try to give credence to those who uh, hold a different point of view about this. Um, and I think that the, the main counter argument is the, 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 again, it's a conventional one in that sense is you can't prove a negative. I cannot assemble the evidence and say, okay, this demonstrates without, 
you know, without reservation, that there is absolutely no adverse effect. In many areas, we get to a point where it's the, the, the evidence is somewhere between absolutely no effect and a small subtle effect, perhaps in subgroups. And for practical purposes, though, I think for decision making, that's that's enough to act on. And interestingly, we are acting on it. We act on it every day, every time we pick up the phone, every, every time we introduce new technology, there may be some misgivings, but I think appropriately, if the technology has advantages, we just aren't seeing the, uh, the health, the, the reasons based on health considerations, not to take advantage of what the next uh, round offers. Um, again, it's not radio frequency, but uh, as we move into a mode with coronavirus of functioning to some degree, uh, not ideally, but functioning to some degree based on these uh, mobile technologies, yeah. well, I think we've just seen a health benefit. That's <laughs> that's got to put it. You got to put that in the other column, I think. That's and true. then in the in the in the Stay negative, connected even with the social isolation. Absolutely, yeah. and there's again, you can broaden that of again, in terms of not just the economic, but the health benefits. And then we make judgments and, and we wanna, uh, you know, you could argue that we would do this even if we did incur some small negatives. Uh, but I think that it, it, it puts it into some perspective of the need for a judgment uh, to be vigilant, but to make an informed and reasoned judgment. Got it, okay. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end this episode. So I'd, I'd love to thank Ari for helping me lead this conversation and thank Dr. Savitz for joining us on this episode. Before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership in SER gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which is coming up in June this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening. We'll be back with another episode soon.